0: Welcome to the J.M.D. podcast, the auditory companion to the Journal of Inherited Metabolic Disease, which is in turn the official journal of the SSIM. Every fortnight we bring you content to accompany recent journal articles spanning the length and breadth of the vast world of inborn errors of in metabolism. In today's episode, we return to a popular topic, X-linked adrenoleukodystrophy. Leukodystrophy. Hello again. It's inevitable that we're going to find ourselves revisiting conditions as the episode count grows, but it was perhaps a little premature to call our last adrenal leukodystrophy episode all about ALD, because there's plenty more to talk about. Today I'm joined by two members of the team at the University of Minnesota, the foremost centre for transplants in ALD and other leukodystrophies, to discuss recent work on differential outcomes in childhood cerebral ALD and transplant outcomes in general. Dr. Ashish Gupta and Dr. Irini Pierpont, thank you for joining me.
1: Good morning, Dr. Thanks for having
0: us. Now, the previous podcast on ALD, we discussed disease modelling, newborn screening and a proposed guideline for screening boys for the onset of cerebral disease. And that last part was with a view to informing decision making um, about hematopoietic stem cell transplantation. Can I begin by asking you, what is it about X-linked ALD that leads to the development of cerebral disease and, and why doesn't everyone get it?
1: <laughs> I'll take that one. Um That is actually, I think, the million-dollar question in the field. And we um, and other centers have been looking into this aspect, and I don't think we have a clear answer yet. There are many potential factors, um, including the kind of mutation, the level of very long-chain fatty acids that you have, and individual immune system might play a role in there as well. But it's not exactly clear why only certain kids would develop cerebral ALD. Like there's the 35 to 40% rate in the in the natural history studies. And that one third rate is still pretty unclear. Like why only those boys develop cerebral ALD? So that is, that is still, I think, the holy grail of cerebral ALD so far.
0: Okay, so a work in progress. Um, and within your paper, you point out that your centre has been doing transplants for ALD for over 30 years now. Has the process changed much over time?
1: Absolutely, absolutely. So we are the largest center in the United States. We do more than half of the transplants for ALD in the country. And um, we are an internationally recognized center for this disease. We started doing transplants way back in early 1990s. And since then, a lot has changed in the field, actually. Understanding of the disease has changed. Understanding of the transplant process has changed. Supportive care around transplant has changed significantly. And actually, if you look at the outcomes in 1990s versus where we are right now, it's a big change in the landscape. What we see now is way different kind of transplant. We have way more donor options. We know how to use them more effectively. We know better how to manage transplant-related complications. So all of those go in improving the survival outcomes, actually. And I think that is a, that is a, big success story in cerebral ALD, where transplant has come a long way in the last 30 years.
0: And those improvements in outcomes wouldn't make you change the balance of transplanting everyone versus just transplanting those who start to show signs of disease? Uh,
1: That is actually a little complex, because what what used to happen was earlier, and this is, I I call it like a newborn screening era in ALD versus a non-newborn screening era in ALD, the disease itself is a little sneaky because by the time you develop symptoms in the disease, the disease has progressed quite a bit in the brain. And so earlier when we started transplanting these boys, what we would face was by the time they are symptomatic, we would be facing a little more advanced disease as compared to an early disease. Most of the boys who have early disease, they are pretty asymptomatic. So to identify them or to diagnose them was quite a bit of a challenge unless there is a strong family history or they were identified by newborn screening. Now we are in that era where newborn screening has opened the floodgates, and uh, we are actually monitoring these kids pretty early in life and doing serial MRIs and making sure that we are not seeing any early subtle signs of disease on the scan. So it is more of an imaging-based diagnosis than really like waiting for the symptoms to develop. So that actually plays a very important role, because for these kids who have advanced disease, the treatment options are very limited. We have, over the years, we have published uh, about these outcomes in many, many research papers and we do identify that after a certain stage when the disease is quite advanced, transplant does not help these boys and the treatment is not very effective. So that was very important demarcation to make in this in this disease and uh, I think that again like reiterates the importance of early diagnosis and uh, how newborn screen has impacted and will be impacting the disease in the future.
0: And obviously this is a paper that's written very much within the newborn screening era. It's talking about outcomes depending on where the MRI lesion is, as opposed to the, the child's clinical symptoms. Why, why was this sort of work necessary? Did you know what you were looking for? Did you got a sense there was something that was going to be found?
2: Well. Childhood cerebral ALD is an erratic and unpredictable disease in many ways. And as Ashish mentioned with our current methods, we have no way of knowing which patients with ALD will develop cerebral disease or when it will happen, other than knowing that it's most likely to happen between 3 and 12 years of age. But in terms of the location of the disease in the brain, the demyelination that happens in cerebral ALD actually arises in a fairly predictable pattern. It nearly always starts in a structure called the corpus callosum and then spreads into the surrounding cerebral white matter. In the vast majority of boys and about 80% of those with cerebral ALD, the disease spreads to the back of the brain, the parietal and occipital lobes. But in some rare cases, in about 15%, the disease spreads from the corpus callosum to the frontal lobe of the brain instead. Now, because ALD is quite rare, and the frontal variant of cerebral ALD is rarer yet, it's been very difficult for researchers and clinicians to determine whether outcomes differ based on the location of the disease. And some previous studies had hinted that survival and risk for disease progression may be less favorable for those patients with the frontal variant, but those findings had very small numbers of patients. And so we wanted to conduct a, a matched comparison study that might provide more insight into the outcomes of stem cell transplantation for those boys with that frontal variant and see how it compares to the more common parietal occipital variant.
0: And so when you made that comparison, what did you find?
2: So in our study, we compared a group of patients with frontal lesions and we matched them on the MRI severity score to a group of patients with parietal occipital lesions. And what we found was broadly similar outcomes across these two groups at least in terms of survival and disease progression on MRI and transplant-related outcomes. And since the patients in our study were treated at a relatively early stage of disease, stem cell transplantation was generally successful at preventing dramatic progression of cerebral disease. However, when we examine the results using our neuropsychological measures, the outcomes were strikingly different between the groups. We found that within a few years after treatment, boys who had frontal lesions were much more likely to experience significant psychiatric concerns. Symptoms such as problems paying attention, impulsive behaviors, or aggression toward family members or peers. And these boys were also more likely to show unusual or atypical behaviors, um, such as making really inappropriate comments, speaking in tangents, um, just destroying property, things like tearing the pages out of the books we use to present our test items. And some showed poor social boundaries, like walking around the waiting room, looking through strangers' belongings. And so when we looked at the types of cognitive and behavioral differences seen in these patients with the frontal variant, the results were very consistent with the important role that our frontal lobes play in the regulation of our attention and our behavior. So the frontal lobes are kind of like the manager of our thoughts and reactions, and they help us filter out distractions and stop our impulses. And so boys with the frontal lesions showed a high degree of difficulty with these forms of self-regulation to a degree that it usually interfered quite a bit with their ability to complete tasks and have successful social interactions on a day-to-day basis. And our study found that they were more likely to have been prescribed medication to treat these psychiatric symptoms as well.
0: What does that then mean for children and and young people who are undergoing stem cell transplantation in XALD?
2: Well, in general, I think it's critical to draw attention to the fact that stem cell transplantation cannot reverse damage that occurs prior to treatment. It can't regrow myelin and that we need to do more to help families manage the behavioral health impact of ALD. And I think this work highlights, you know, first, that patients with cerebral ALD are likely to require a variety of school supports and community supports after treatment. And second, that certain patients, like those with more extensive lesions or with frontal lesions, will often need a higher level of mental health care, such as working with a psychiatrist, a mental health case manager or a therapist. And this multidisciplinary care team is going to be so important to help families navigate these cognitive and behavioral impacts, at least until newborn screening is universally implemented. When Drs. Malak and Kemp did their podcast in early 2021, there were 21 U.S. states screening newborns for ALD, and now there are 25 U.S. states, so we're, we're increasing over time, but until newborn screening is universally implemented and we can detect cerebral disease at a very early stage in every patient and then intervene without delay, um, we're going to really need to help these families navigate the impacts of cerebral ALD.
0: And I mean, Ashish, I asked you if if we can predict the children who are going to go on to develop um, the cerebral disease. Can we predict which children will get frontal versus posterior lesions?
1: I, I would really like to have a prediction globe here with me, I guess. No, unfortunately not at this point. It's uh, It has been a dilemma and there are several factors that we are looking into trying to identify why um, certain boys have the frontal pattern versus a paradoxical pattern. And there are some boys actually who have Quite an atypical pattern, even different from frontal and uh, prior occipital. Some boys would have lesions just in the pyramidal tracts, which is again not the large percentage. It is still a predominantly prior occipital disease, but yeah, we have not been able to identify that. And those are the those are the next steps that we are trying to take to see what are the what are the factors that might be responsible or might at least give us an idea that these are the group of boys who have a higher tendency to develop. Frontal disease versus paradoxical
0: disease. I mean, I didn't ask you because your paper's not about it, but I, the spinal disease is not improved by transplant, is it? Or is it?
1: No. Nope. So I, I should not say no. So that, that is a that is a question. But the challenge is that like we started doing transplants for ALD in the last 30, 35 years. And the AMN, the spinal disease, develops like more in third or mostly fourth and fifth decade. So that cohort has still not matured to the point where. We can really truly say that, well, you know what, because they got transplanted, we are not seeing any AMN actually. So maybe in the next 10, 20 years, we will have that answer, but it's still a dilemma. We have seen some of the boys who got transplanted for cerebral ALD who did end up developing AMN. But again, these are very small numbers right now, and and we don't know how many will not develop AML. So, so difficult to say at this point, but that is always us. I'll also say that the pathophysiology is quite different. The inflammatory demyelinating disease in cerebral ALD versus more of a hypomyelination in the spinal disease, there is no inflammatory component there. So it's it's more of a degenerative disease. So it's a uh, it's little questionable how transplants might Alter the course there, but again, this disease is such a mystery, and and I I always hate to say like that we are still trying to figure it out. Like like that is a that is a defeat actually that we are we still don't know why only one third of the boys develop cerebral A L T and which one thirds are going to develop like no clue at all. But I think maybe the answers lie in this prospective cohort where we are following them from the beginning. We have sequential data on them, and maybe down the road we will have those answers. That you know what like these are the boys who ultimately ended up developing
0: surgery. Very difficult for the families, I imagine. It
1: is it is a devastating disease.
0: And I mean, you've mentioned that advances are being made in the stem cell transplant process, but it, it's not an easy option. It still carries a really significant risk. As, as Rini has explained, the neurocognitive outcomes, whilst clearly better than untreated disease, could certainly be better still. What does the future hold for ALD as you see it?
1: The future is quite promising, I would say. And uh, some of the recent advances that have been made are very promising. So, first and foremost, is definitely the newborn screening. Like that has definitely changed the whole world of ALD. And as a treatment provider, I cannot emphasize on the fact that, like, seeing a kid with advanced cerebral ALD versus identifying the the disease much earlier and having that time to intervene is such a such a big blessing and i think this is the single most intervention that is going to change the field for alt especially for cerebral alt in terms of the current interventions that we have and the future interventions um i think transplant has has become a way way better therapy than what it was 30 years ago and uh, there has been significant improvements in morbidity and mortality with stem cell transplants. There are changes in conditioning regimens. There are lesser toxic conditioning. There are antibody-based conditionings. And there are other therapies that are coming in, in the transplant world, which would be a game changer in several in ALD interventions. Another therapy that uh, finished the clinical trials and uh, has shown some very promising results is the gene therapy. We have a lentivirus-based um, autotransplant model for, for gene therapy in cerebral ALD, where they have shown promising outcomes actually with arresting the disease at an earlier stage. And this kind of like obviates the need of a donor, actually. It is your own stem cells. So, so you, you're not limited by what donor options you, you get or the complications like graft versus host disease. And then there are therapies, actually, which are non-transplant-based therapies. And uh, there are still clinical trials. Some of the trials will hopefully start in boys with terrible disease. Um, There are some adult trials going on in AMN, actually. So those will be the things to look out for in the future as well and see uh, where things go from there
0: presume those are the difficult trials to do when you've got a, a standard of care treatment that is very effective. It is very difficult to randomise a child away from that. I completely agree.
1: But I think as as we see more and more early disease, there's also a, an outlook of not needing transplant-based therapies because it, it's it carries its own weight and the, the child goes through a lot. It still involves chemotherapy, be it transplant or gene therapy. So those, those factors do play a role. And Especially when you have early disease, you if you are trying some of these um, these agents in trials, you might still have an option. Say God forbid if the if, if the agent doesn't work and if if you still see the progression, you still have a backup option of trying some of the standard therapies. So so I think um, I think it will be worth trying, and um, I am very optimistic about the future therapies that are coming into the market.
0: So for now, we need newborn screening, then we need cerebral screening and then we need transplant, and then we need good neurocognitive follow-up. Yep.
2: Yeah, I think you know one of the things we've done particularly well at the University of Minnesota over the decades is following and tracking those clinical outcomes of our patients after treatment. And Dr. Gupta and I can't really take credit for that. We stand on the shoulders of the transplanters and the neuropsychologists that came before us, but our group has continued to be interested in understanding and measuring what life is like for our patients after treatment. How is brain functioning and behavior different than before cerebral ALD? And then taking that information and using it to think about how can we do better? What are the modifiable factors, the things that we can change about the monitoring and the treatment approaches that we're using so that we can preserve a child's best possible functioning so that he can retain those capabilities that he was developing before cerebral ALD and succeed in school, participate fully, and meaningfully in his life.
1: And elaborating um, on what Rini just said earlier, the focus was transplant and outcomes post-transplant. Now with a newborn screen, we have a comprehensive ALD clinic where we are monitoring and uh, doing the surveillance for these kids and their families, actually. Um, And this is a very integrative and comprehensive approach where we, along with the geneticists, the neurologists, neuropsychologists and endocrinologists, sorry, I should definitely mention that. And uh, we all actually get together and we evaluate these kids every single scan they have and look into like what is going on with the kid and a major chunk of them will not develop cerebral ALT. But being there up front to help navigate these families and these children is so very important at this point. And we are seeing actually kids from all across the United States in in this comprehensive ALT clinic. And it has been a, a very, very insightful experience to see this prospective cohort and uh, how they are developing adrenal insufficiency or cerebral ALT.
0: Thank you both. And I'm glad you mentioned the endocrine people because I share my office with one and I think he wouldn't forgive me. Um, yeah, they won't forgive me. Either. <laughs> <laughs> You can find Reenie and Ashish's paper by searching our general website for differential outcomes in childhood cerebral adrenal leukodystrophy or by clicking the link in the podcast description. And if you'd like to hear more from us, including the evidently misnamed All About ALD episode featuring Stephen Kemp and Eric Malak, then just search for JMD Podcast wherever you like to listen. Uh, Reenie and Ashish, thank you again for your time this afternoon. Oh, pleasure. And pleasure. And thank you for listening. Until next time, goodbye.